You can turn in your Bible to Amos chapter 3. The text ended up being a little bit too long to include in the bulletin for you, so I'm sure Mel will appreciate the fact that there's plenty of space for notes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Amos 3, 1 through 11. Um, The Apostle Peter said uh, in one of his epistles, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The prophet Amos spoke of a more fearsome lion, one whose roar is more terrible, one whose prey could never escape him, even if they're on the watch, um, if he comes after them. God is that lion. He is good, but he is not tame, as the beaver beaver told uh, Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's good, but he is not tame. If we are supposed to be sober-minded about the devil, how much more sober-minded should we be about God? Let's, um, Let's consider him carefully as we consider his word this morning. Let me pray, and then I'll read the scripture. Father, we know that um, we are among those who resist your word. We don't want to come to your word simply hoping that it will reinforce our own prejudices, but um, hoping that you would change our lives because we know that we need to be changed. We know we need to hear a word from heaven, a word that um, is not from this world, not something uh, someone just came up with, but a word from you. And we have that in your scriptures, and we're uh, glad to sit under your word, and we pray that by your spirit you would help us to receive it with gladness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos 3, verses 1 through 11. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth... Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. This is the word of the Lord. That was enthusiastic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, There's a recurring theme uh, throughout the book of Amos. God's own people did not want to listen to God. God's own people did not want to listen to God. Uh, They didn't want to listen to his prophets who spoke the word of God 
to them. The prophets came with a hard message about the righteous God who is angry with his people for their sins and that the people would rather be, uh, be allowed to believe otherwise, right? Just, just leave us alone, rather continue along, business as usual, we don't want to listen to this. So Amos uh, had to be unmistakably clear, direct, uh, persistent, insistent, uh, repetitive maybe, <clears throat> that, um, that his message was the very word of God and that that fact warrants giving your close attention to it, even if you don't like what you hear. So uh, what is God saying to his people in ancient Israel? It's pretty much the same thing that he said about 800 years later to his people in Ephesus, uh, which we read about in our New Testament reading. The Apostle John wrote um, the book of Revelation, and one of the churches to which it was addressed was Ephesus. And we read this in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Um, and this is a strong warning right, for God's people throughout history. He says, unless you repent, I will come and take away your lampstand. I'll take away your church. I'll take away the foundations of your church. I will wipe you out as a church unless you repent and do the things you did at first, unless you return to that first love. Right? That's a strong word of warning for God's people throughout history. God's people are God's people because they enter into a relationship with him, right? Um, theologically, it's a covenant relationship. It's a relationship that's based on promises, and it's bounded by certain stipulations. It can be understood as simply as this, as God saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people and then the people agreeing to that relationship. Right? I mean, that's as basic as it gets, which we see repeated throughout the scriptures. I will be your God, you will be my people. Okay, right? We've reached an agreement about that. If you read the whole Bible, you see that this covenant relationship is founded solely on God's grace and the forgiveness of our sins. He doesn't have to enter into this relationship with us, but he does so out of love and sheer mercy. You also see that as evidence of the genuineness of this relationship, God's people are required to demonstrate lives of obedience. Right? We enter into this relationship by grace, we stay in it by grace, but we're required to demonstrate that we have a real connection personally to God through uh, the fruit of our lives, through obedience. Those who are in a true saving relationship with God by his grace, will bear the fruit of that relationship in their lives as they do what he says, right? as they keep his law. <clears throat> you have a, um, just a clear summary of that in Exodus chapter 21. After God had taken the whole people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and plunked them into the middle of the wilderness, made them sit down and listen to him as he gave them his law, he starts off by saying, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of the house of slavery, out of Egypt, right? I'm the one who saved you. You're here by my grace. You're my people by my grace. And then basically, therefore, keep my Ten Commandments. Right? The Ten Commandments, which we see are, are a summary of the whole law of God. And if they do not bear such fruit, if they don't keep those commandments as people who have been redeemed by God's grace, um, then they're considered to be covenant breakers. And they're subject then 
to the curses of the covenant, such as are seen in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'm not going to read those. They're too depressing, right? Um, You can go and read that this afternoon. Deuteronomy 28, you see the, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience, right? For breaking covenant with God, you are subject to the curses of the covenant. We understand this in the way that we view um, church membership and baptism uh, today, right? Upon profession of faith, you become a Christian. Upon profession of faith, we make vows to submit to God. Right? We're going to actually have some of those vows uh, read later today during the service. Um, we make vows to submit to God, and then we receive the sign of the covenant in the baptismal waters. Um, we enter into covenant with God. Now, is everyone who is baptized, is everyone who is in covenant with God, truly in a saving relationship with God? Does every single person who enters covenant with God end up in heaven? No. And that's clear throughout the scriptures, because many break covenant with God by their disobedience. And in so doing, they show they never had a true saving relationship with him. And this is scary. We have the potential to deceive ourselves into thinking that everything between us and God is okay. We're in covenant with God. He's chosen us as his people. We're sitting here in the pew on Sunday morning. This is our church. We're members, right? We're okay with God. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we truly know God uh, when we really don't. With Amos and ancient Israel, this fact uh, should have been very clear because they were committing obvious atrocities, crimes against humanity, unquestionably being disobedient to God's commands, right? Uh, Verses 1 and 2. Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known, you only have I been in a special covenant relationship with of all the families of the earth. And then it's unspoken, but it's implied, uh, and you've broken my covenant. Therefore, I will be the one to punish you for all your iniquities, God says. They'd experienced great privilege as God's covenant people, right? But they had neglected and abused his grace. They'd taken it for granted. And so they would experience great condemnation. As Jesus said um, in Luke chapter 12, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And in verses uh, 3 through 6, I'm not going to read through all those again, but using a series of rhetorical questions, right? Clearly, these these questions have a simple answer to them. Everybody understands them. God makes it clear that his wrath is coming on his people that have broken covenant with him by their disobedience. They didn't even know how to do right, it says later in the text, as was evident even to their notoriously pagan neighbors, They didn't know how to do right. Um, So a a hypothetical parallel in our church today um, would be if if one of you, a member of our congregation, had answered when you became a member of our congregation this vow in the affirmative. It's the third vow that we take. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. You've made that vow. You're a member of this church. And then you proceed to utterly disregard the commands of Scripture. And you let greed ruin all your relationships. 
or you utterly disregard what Scripture says about marriage. Or you in some other way live in constant rebellion against God rather than in submission to God as you vowed that you would in that vow as a member of this church. You would be a covenant breaker. And you'd be subject to God's righteous curse. Now, with many people inside the church, it isn't quite as clear as this because we obey, right? Um, We conform. We are externally compliant with God's law, right? Um, In fact, that was what was happening in Ephesus when John wrote his vision uh, to them in Revelation. They did good works. They toiled, and God saw that. He knew their toil. He knew their um, patient endurance, it says. Their patient endurance for Jesus' sake. They were discerning. They tested those who claimed to be apostles and found them to be false, right? These are theologically aware, good-living Christians in the church. Nevertheless, they had lost the center. They had lost their first love. Their obedience was supposed to grow out of a deep relationship with God, a real personal connection with God, but it came from somewhere else. And in the Bible, apparent obedience can be the same as blatant disobedience to God when it's done from a heart that is far from God. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, it's the day of final judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Even though they verbally acknowledge Jesus as Lord, which is something that you only do when you're in covenant with God, right? Jesus is Lord, even though they serve him and successfully accomplish miracles, he calls them workers of lawlessness because they never had a true relationship of intimate, mutual knowledge with God. They're in covenant with God. He's their Lord, yet they're covenant breakers, even though they obeyed him. So you can be in covenant with God and disobey, and you can be in covenant with God and obey, and still be a covenant breaker and be subject to God's righteous curse because of what's going on inside of you, at the root, right, in your heart. If your deeds are supposed to demonstrate a real relationship with God as your Savior, then the important thing is to have a real relationship with God as your Savior, right, to actually have a real relationship with him. You need a living faith in him. You need to have him as your first love. And that only comes as you get to know him as he has revealed himself and as you accept him on his terms. You can't just have a God of your own making. You can't just tell yourself over and over again that God is a God of love. And then stop up your ears when he plainly tells you of his righteous anger. If you're going to know God, 
you're going to love God, then you have to know him and love him as he really is. And he is most clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, as Paul wrote to the, the Colossians, is the image of the invisible God. He is God, and therefore he reveals God perfectly to us. So if you don't know Jesus intimately, as he's revealed, set forth in the Gospels for us, if you don't know Jesus intimately, you don't know God. And you have to know his work, especially as we see it on the cross. The cross is where um, God reveals himself most clearly to us for our salvation. It's where the perfect justice of God and the amazing grace of God meet. God is holy. He will not tolerate sin, and therefore he will not tolerate us, uh, left as we are to ourselves as sinners. All people everywhere sin, especially his own people who have been given the great privilege of being in a relationship with him. We justly deserve his displeasure, his punishment for our sin. And at the cross, the people of God suffered full punishment as Jesus, the true Israel, the true person of God, suffered hell under God's wrath and died. If you're in Christ by faith, if you're truly united to him in a real spiritual relationship of love, then in a sense, you were there when he was crucified and killed, and you were there when God punished your sins, and you were there when God raised Jesus from the dead. In Christ, you have received God's full justice, and in Christ, you have received God's full favor and his promise of eternal life. And Christianity is about that connection, being in Christ, that relationship, that unity, being in Christ by faith, right? That's what we need to remember every morning for ourselves, not just in the morning, but it really helps to get up in the morning and preach the gospel to yourself. God loves you. He gave his son Jesus for you. You are connected to him. Right? And that's what we need to teach our children constantly. Isn't it? What do, you, what do you think is the most important aspect of your role as a parent in the lives of your children? Is it teaching them how to behave well in public? Is it providing them a comfortable life and a sizable inheritance for them? Is it equipping them with a stellar education to prepare them for work? Is that your main role? Or is it connecting them on a deep personal level with the Savior? Is it showing them how to reorganize, uh, how to reorganize their entire life around their need for Jesus and their relationship with Jesus? How to recognize their utter need, how to ask him for forgiveness, how to pray, how to thank God, how to love God. If they get that, then their lives will bear fruit, right? They'll be okay if they are connected to Jesus because being truly intimately united to Christ by faith, knowing God through the grace of Jesus Christ awakens our hearts to new obedience. If you love Jesus for who he is and for what he's done for you, then you will want to follow him and do what he says. You will bear fruit in your life that shows your allegiance to him. So let's pray for that. Amen.
Father, it's easy for us to try to reduce um, Christianity to a set of rules for us to keep. And a lot of times we do that to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay with you. I'm not okay with you because of what I do, Lord. Um, I'm okay with you because you've forgiven me, you've cleansed me from my sin, and you've lifted my heart to heaven. You've made that place my home. None of these are things that I've deserved. You've done it surely of your grace, out of your love, and um, through Jesus Christ at the cross. And so I come to you asking uh, for myself and for my friends here that you would keep us close to you, that you would help us not to wander in our hearts from our first love. You would help us to uh, truly be united by faith to our Savior in order to receive all the benefits of our salvation, but primarily because we want to be close to you. Would you make that truth uh, more real in our hearts and in our minds? Would you remind us more frequently of this relationship that we have with you? And it is one of comfort and encouragement. It is also one of challenge. And as we walk with you, would you help us to obey you? Would you help us to submit to your word, even though sometimes we don't want to hear it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>